Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearer silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Church, it's good for us to gather this morning on this Good Friday morning and to commemorate all that Christ has done for us on the cross, to position our hearts towards God in a position of bowing, a position of awe that according to the will of God, he would crush his own son in order that we, the sheep who have gone astray, might find hope, we might find life, we might find righteousness in him. And so it is good to be together on Good Friday. And if you're new with us, we want to welcome you here. We've set up an area just for you. You can check out after the service called Connections at the back of this worship center, and we'd love to meet you. I just want to let you know that as we celebrate all that Christ did for us in his death and think about that this morning, our service is going to look a little different Uh, We're going to spend a lot of time reflecting on the cross. And at the end of our service, we're going to take communion together. And I just ask, if you're not a believer, if you don't believe in what Christ has done for you, and that hasn't been applied to you personally, I just ask that you let that pass by, that you don't take the cup or the bread. And if there's sin in your heart that you haven't repented of, that you're unwilling to deal with, not that you're a sinner, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but if there's unrepentant sin in your heart, I just ask that you not take that cup the end of the service, we're going to take communion and watch a short video and a slide is going to come up to signal that uh, our service is finished. And and I just ask that in a spirit of uh, reflectiveness, that you would just leave this room quietly and allow those who just want to be with the Lord and spend some time meditating on his cross and his death, allow them to do that uh, just in a moment of silence here in this room. Let's pray as we begin our service. Father, God, would you till the hearts of our, the soil of our hearts right now by the power of your Holy Spirit to be ready for all that you're going to accomplish in this time, God. 
Lord, there's no more significant weekend of the year for our church because, Lord, this was the most significant weekend in all of history. God, the weekend that your son climbed onto the cross willingly for the joy that was set before him, endured the pain, endured your wrath in order to bear the iniquities of us all. And so, God, as we spend this time to worship and to praise you for all that you have done, God, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, change us as we gaze at the glory of the cross and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. God, we give this service to you because you, Lord, yours is the glory and yours is the exaltation. And we are here to worship you for all that you have done. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave, it to, gave to him a drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And they, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that it was your plan. Thank you for the love that you have shown us in sending your son to bear such a great weight. Lord, the weight of your wrath poured out against him because of our sin. And God, in this moment, I pray that we would feel that weight, not in the sense of that it's on our own shoulders, but a sense of seeing what this centurion saw, Lord, of the weight that Jesus bore. And Lord, that we would grow in an awe and a belief that truly this man who died 2,000 years ago was the Son of God and our only hope for salvation. 
And so God, we lift this time to you and we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. As you grab a seat, you can take your copy of God's Word and open it up to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the ushers are going to come to the front of the worship center right now, and they're going to make their way to the back. And you can just slip your hand up in the air, and they'd be happy to give you a Bible. And I just want to let you know you can keep that. That's our gift to you. If you will read it and see what God has to reveal to you, then uh, we are more than happy to give that to you. When Jesus died, we just read a supernatural darkness covered the whole land for three hours. In this factual, historical story, we discover that in the middle of day, from noon until 3 p.m., the whole land was dark. This was a darkness that was supernatural, and it was a darkness we're going to discover this morning that was profound. It was supernatural in the sense that no one to this day can explain it naturally. There are some who say, well, maybe it was a solar eclipse, uh, but I don't know if you've ever seen a solar eclipse. A solar eclipse may darken the land for a few minutes, but it certainly doesn't do it for three hours. There are some who say that maybe this was a comes in dust storm, which can happen in the Middle East when the dust becomes so intense that it can block out light for days. And yet we know because of Passover that this would have been the end of a rainy season in which that kind of dust storm couldn't happen. And so we know that this darkness that was over the whole land was a supernatural darkness. But what I want you to see also this morning was that this darkness that came over the land as Jesus was being crucified on the cross was a profound darkness. In that it was a darkness that is meant to teach you something. As you take the time this morning to reflect on the historical, factual crucifixion of the human being named Jesus Christ, who was on that cross nearly 2,000 years ago, I want you to consider that God made the land dark in order that you might learn something from it this morning. It's a profound darkness, and it's meant to teach us this. It's meant to reveal to us the darkness that's over us, the darkness that was over Jesus, and how the way, the way that Jesus' darkness deals with our darkness. That's what I want you to see this morning about this darkness, that there is a darkness that's over us, there's a darkness over Jesus, and I want you to see that the darkness over Jesus, it deals with our darkness. Now first consider with me the darkness that is over us. It's the darkness we read of in Mark 15, verse 33, where he says the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Everyone in the land, because of what was happening to the Son of God, was covered in darkness. And God's intention was that this physical darkness would reveal a spiritual darkness that was not only surrounding the people of that time, it was also inside of them, and it's a darkness that is inside of us this morning. I want you to know about this darkness that is over us and in us, and I want you to see first that this darkness is a damaging darkness. Now, if you were to read the Gospel of Mark and circle every time that Mark talks about either darkness or the evening or the night, you'll, you would discover that Mark has a real theme here. Mark equates darkness and the things that happen in the evening and the things that happen at night, he, he associates those things with evil. And throughout the biography of 
Jesus Christ of Nazareth's life, what Mark notes is that regularly Jesus fights the evil hostilities and forces that are against him. So in Mark chapter 132, if you were to do this exercise, you would discover that Jesus is found casting out demons, and he does that in the evening. And then in Mark 4.35 and 6.37, you would see twice that there are these, there's the evil of natural disasters. There's these storms that are threatening the disciples' lives. And both these storms happen in the evening. And in one case, Jesus will have power over the storm to be able to walk on water. You remember with Peter. And in another case, Jesus will have power over the evil of this natural force, this storm, in order to say to the water, be still, and it will be still. In Mark 11, 11, during the evening, Jesus would walk into the temple and see, and see that the temple had become this mockery to God. And so in Mark 14, 17, later he would come to the temple in the evening and he would cleanse it. Later in Mark, Jesus would eat the Passover meal with his disciples in the evening as his imminent death loomed before him, and he told his disciples yet again that he would die and three days later rise again. Mark tells us that the trial of Jesus happens at night. We read of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was tried. All this to say that throughout the ministry and life of Jesus, Jesus was acquainted with the evil of the darkness. And Jesus walked in the darkness and confronted the darkness in a way that it was, he experienced the hurt, the pain, and the damage of the darkness. There's a damage to the evil in this world that afflicts us, that each of us have experienced, if we're honest. We, like Jesus, have experienced, maybe not personally, but at least from afar, the darkness of a natural disaster destroying people's lives and destroying their livelihood. Jesus experienced the darkness of being abandoned by his closest friends and family. And certainly we've felt that darkness as well. He felt the darkness of physical pain. Jesus walked in the damaging darkness that each of us have experienced in this world. Now I know that If you and I were to sit down and make a list of all the things that we agree on or disagree on, the list would be probably pretty long. But one thing that we can agree on this morning is that this is an evil world. There is a lot of darkness in this world. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There is a lot of things that you see on the news, that you read on the internet, that are unexplainable, inexplicable suffering. No one's walking into this room, I I assume, unless we've got a lot of blinders on. No one's walking into this room saying, man, this world's, we're doing pretty good. Instead, we're all kind of like, man, something's going to blow up here soon. It feels kind of like we're in a boiling pot. It feels like things are pretty messed up. We know the evil of the world. We know the darkness of the world. We see it from afar. We experience it in our own life. We know that things are not the way they should be. Often as I interact with People who have not considered the worldview, that that can be a real challenge for them. How can you believe in a good God when we live in a world that is so evil? And my question for you this morning, if if that's kind of like the thing that you're wrestling with, my question is this, how do you deal with the evil? 
How does your worldview make sense of the evil that is in this world, of the darkness that each of us constantly walk in? Isn't it a mark of humanity that you, if you haven't just suffered and you're not suffering now, then very likely you're soon to suffer. And how do you make sense of that darkness that, that constantly surrounds your life? How do you make sense of the way that the darkness and evil of this world has damaged you? By the end of this message, I want you to see that the Christian worldview through the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is the only worldview that can deal with this darkness. Another thing I want you to see is not only was this darkness damaging, this darkness was disorienting. It was a disorienting darkness. Now, I think now more than any other culture, any other people in the history of humanity, I think now we do not understand what darkness is like. There is pretty much always either a light switch or a phone with a flashlight or a flashlight available to us so that if we're in the darkness, we can readily find light. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were in like real darkness? I'm not talking like outside with no lights, the moon is shining and you can still kind of make things out. I'm talking like real pitch black darkness where like you put your hand an inch from your face and you can't even see your hand. When was the last time you were in that kind of darkness? If you stay in that kind of darkness for long enough, it becomes entirely disorienting. You don't know which way is up from down. The famous story of a British explorer in 1914, his name was Ernest Shackleton. He took a ship to the Antarctica, the ship called the Endurance, and their plan was to sail to the Antarctica and to walk across it, past the South Pole. They were going to be the first people to ever do that. Now, I'm not interested in this message to figure out why anyone would ever do that. I have no clue why anyone would want to do that, because there are obvious dangers involved, and this ship, the Endurance, got caught in one of those dangers. It was crushed in the polar ice. And it's an amazing story because over the next several months, all the people on this ship made their way home. They all survived. It's an incredible story. But of all the things that they faced during those months, of starvation, the incredibly cold temperatures, one biographer notes that the worst thing they faced was the darkness. We know that days get shorter and days get longer. Well, in Antarctica, the sun goes down in mid-May and doesn't come up until late July. And so there's no sunlight for three months. One biographer said, in all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no light, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few accustomed to it can fight off its effects all together, and it has driven some men mad. See, this physical darkness represents a spiritual darkness that disorients all of us apart from Christ. See, the Bible, it says that God is light, and to know God, to be in relationship with God, is to walk in the light. As a church, we've been walking through the book of Genesis this year, and you'll remember that in Genesis 1-1, we were told that the world was, in, was dark, it was in darkness, and it was formless and void. And God did a work in that formless and void, dark world. He did an incredible work to bring structure to what was formless and void, 
to bring peace to the chaos, to create our world. And the first thing that God did in that work was this. He said, let there be light. And this light was both a physical light, but it was also a spiritual light. See, the world was created, we're told in Genesis 1, in order that mankind might know God. Mankind was created in the image of God, which is kind of like to be like a mirror that points to a light and is meant to reflect that light brilliantly everywhere. We were created as human beings to live facing God who is light. That's why the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Because when I orient my heart to God's word, I face the God who is light. And I can all of a sudden make sense of the way that I should go. To know God is to know light. The problem is that Adam and Eve, they chose to turn away from the source of light. Just like each of us have. And to walk in this disorienting darkness. Well, what does it mean to walk in disorienting darkness? What does that look like for us? Well, it means that each of us have turned away from the one true source of light, knowledge and relationship with God. We've turned away from that to pursue something else. It means that rather than living according to our created purpose, which is to love God, we've lived for something else. And we've all walked in this disorienting darkness. We've done it by placing things on the altar of our heart as the first love of our heart in the place that God should reside. God should be the first love of our hearts. And yet each of us turn away to things that are not God. Now, some of us do this to, to things that we mutually would agree are just works of darkness, works of evil. There are some who are murderers, and we could probably all say, okay, well, the murderer, they're, they're not doing a great thing. There are some who are thieves. They steal, and, and we can look at that person and say, well, by placing the love of stealing and uh, taking other people's possessions, that person is not doing a good thing. We understand how that's disorienting darkness. We understand how that person is walking in darkness and in evil, but the reality is that for many of us, what we do is put things that may be good things in the place of the great thing. We take the gifts that God has given to us and we love those gifts more than we love the giver. How does this work for me? How does this work for you? Well, here's how it works. If you love your family more than you love God, the Bible says you've turned away from the God who is light and are walking in spiritual darkness. If you've loved success more than you've loved God, you've turned away from the God who is light and are walking in disorienting darkness. If your love for control replaces your love for God, you've turned away from God and you're walking in disorienting darkness. This can be incredibly sneaky. Anything in your life that replaces your love for God immediately casts you into this disorienting darkness. Think about this for me. One of the challenges that I face in this world is that I have this desire to be, hopefully, a good preacher. Some of you guys right now are like, yeah, you got a lot of work still to do, okay? Long way to go. I want to be a good preacher. I want to be a good pastor. I want to serve God faithfully. But if my desire 
to be a good preacher, to be a good pastor, replaces my personal love and affection for God. I have all of a sudden made an idol out of the very thing that God has called me to do. You see how this works in your life? Each of us turn away from the God of light to the things that he has given us. And when we do that, we walk in disorienting darkness. But I want you to see this morning that the ultimate problem with our disorienting darkness is that it is a destructive darkness. Sure, it's destructive in the sense that when we love anything more than God, it will never satisfy us. If you're pursuing joy, satisfaction, fulfillment in your family, and success, in control, and being a good preacher or pastor, you need to know that that is a destructive pursuit, and in this life, you will never find the joy that you're looking for. Isn't that why, when we've experienced that in our own life, we always feel like joy is just around the corner. Have you ever felt that? Oh, if I just get the promotion, then I'll be happy. Oh, if I just buy that new house, then I'll be happy. Oh, if I just have a bigger family, then I'll be happy. If I just win the appreciation of that one person, then I'll be happy. Joy's always around the corner, but then you get to that thing, and you discover that there's another corner, and there's endless corners in life, and it just seems like the thing you're chasing, you're so close to, but you cannot get. It is because it is leading you down a hallway of destructive darkness. See, our darkness leads to a deeper destruction that in one day, maybe not now, because God is forbearing his wrath, because God is allowing us to live in the light of this world, but one day his judgment will come. And the Bible tells us that there is a day coming where you will be walking, and the judgment of God will come out of nowhere. It'll be like when you're walking in the middle of the night, and you crack your knee against something that you did not see, and you thought that everything was okay, you thought you are okay, but then in a moment, it's all over, and God has appeared, and you will discover that because you've turned from the light your whole life, you have now entered into eternal destruction, the destruction that we deserve because of the way that we have walked in darkness. This is the darkness that's over us. It's a damaging, disorienting, destructive darkness. But I want you also to take a moment to consider the darkness that was over Jesus. Notice that just as this darkness comes to an end, Mark gives us a glimpse of the darkness that was on Jesus' shoulders. So you'll notice there in Mark 15, verse 34, that Jesus cries out these words. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in these words, we get a small window into the darkness that Jesus had entered into on the cross. You see, Jesus came into this world, and we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he knew no sin. He was without sin. Never had Jesus done that thing that we just talked about, where he turned away from the source of light to love anything more than God. That means that Jesus was more undeserving of judgment than anyone who had ever lived because he had not sinned. He had not turned away from the light to the destructive darkness. He had not done it once, not in a thought, not in an attitude, not for a millisecond. And yet here he is entering into the darkness of crucifixion on the cross. And in words of pain, he cries out on the cross and we discover exactly what this darkness is that Jesus climbed into. Notice that it wasn't the pain 
and darkness of earthly desertion. Certainly Jesus suffered alone. All those closest to Jesus in this crucial hour had abandoned him. And he felt the pain that so many of us have felt of desertion. And yet Jesus in this moment, he doesn't cry out, my friends, my friends. He doesn't cry out, my parents, my parents. He cries out, my God, my God. Notice that this darkness was not a physical pain. Jesus didn't cry out, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my head, my head. This should absolutely shock us that the darkness which Jesus bore on his shoulders was not a darkness of physical pain. And it will shock us as we come to understand what crucifixion was. See, the act of crucifixion, to be hung on a cross, it would force the person being crucified to slowly suffocate themselves to death. There would be nails driven through their wrists and nails driven through their feet. And when they were hung, they would hang on the weight of their wrists. This would put their chest in a position that would make it incredibly difficult to exhale. And so in order to get a breath, in order to just draw a breath of air to continue to live, the person being crucified would be forced to push themselves up. And they would feel the pain, the nerve pain, shoot through their entire body as their entire weight shifted from their wrists to their feet, as their hands rotated around the nails, causing pressure in different places, and their joints moved in order that they may get into a position that they could breathe. They would push themselves into this position, and for a moment, they would stave off suffocation, but they couldn't last there for long, and so, so they would be forced to carry the weight again on their wrists. This act of up and down along a rough, rugged, wooden cross, it would reopen further and further the wounds that Jesus had bore by being flogged, his back that was torn open. And yet, it was not the darkness of physical pain that made Jesus cry out. He did not say, my hands, my hands. What Jesus said on the cross was, my God, my God. The pain that Jesus bore on the cross, it was the spiritual pain of desertion from his father. In that moment, he was forsaken by God, whom he had loved more than anyone else in the whole entire universe. For all of eternity, up to this point, Jesus' affection for the father had been white hot, it had been blazing. It had been infinite. And in this moment, the very one that he has loved for all of eternity, that has been his joy for all of eternity, has deserted him. Here on the cross, God had forsaken him. And instead of facing love and intimacy, Jesus faced his wrath. The prophet Isaiah describes what it means for God to forsake Jesus. It means that the iniquity of all would be placed on his shoulders. Imagine the spiritual punishment and torment Jesus would have faced just to pay the penalty for our sins. And yet on the cross, Jesus bore the sins of many. He bore the weight of torment for all who would believe. Why would Jesus 
do this. Certainly the people who were around that cried out he could deliver himself were right. And yet Jesus hung on that cross for this purpose because Jesus' darkness deals with our darkness. And by sitting in his darkness and walking down that corridor that had been planned for him before eternity, Jesus knew it was at the end. He knew that his darkness would be the way that our darkness was ultimately dealt with. Look at what Mark says in verse 37. He says, Jesus uttered a loud cry, the cry that we just heard very likely, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, there was another supernatural and profound miracle. And that miracle was that the curtain, which previously hung in the temple, this gigantic curtain, it tore in two. This curtain, it blocked the entrance to the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God's presence dwelt, and no one could have access but for one, one time a year. The great high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, but even then, there would be all sorts of stipulations around that entrance. No one could truly experience intimacy and fellowship with the presence of God. But in that moment that Jesus breathed his last, this curtain tore. Well, why is it supernatural? It's supernatural because Mark really makes a point for you to know that this curtain tore from top to bottom. If we were going to tear a curtain, we would tear it from bottom to top. And yet this curtain tore from the heavens to the earth. And it's a reminder that just as Jesus came from the heavens to the earth, his mission in doing that was to tear down this curtain in order that everyone who looks to the darkness that he bore might find access into the presence of God. Jesus endured the darkness of the cross in order that a way might be made to access God's presence. And so the question for you and I then is how do we get there? How do we get into the presence of God? And Mark tells us exactly how in Mark 15, 39, when the centurion who stood facing him declared these words, truly, this is the man. This man was the son of God. This centurion was a military officer who had risen the ranks of the Roman army to a place of leadership. And of anyone in the world who was acquainted with death, it was this man. Centurions did not have a high survival rate. And in order to raise the ranks of this, as this man had, surely many of his friends would have died. He would have seen in war many people die. And yet it was also this man's job to oversee the death of criminals against the Roman Empire. And so he would regularly witness crucifixions. On this very workday, this man was overseeing at least three crucifixions. And he had seen many deaths. So that it kind of had become rote to him. This was like routine. And yet, something, something about the death of Jesus changed this man's life forever and caused him to declare, surely this man was the Son of God. 
Now, it's the purpose in the gospel of Mark. The very purpose that Mark writes his gospel is to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. He writes in Mark 1.1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then for the rest of the book, Mark is making this argument that Jesus is the Son of God. And so now this centurion sees, he believes, and he's the very first one in the gospel of Mark to declare what Mark was set out to do, to declare that this man, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. This is significant because as someone who was ingrained in the world, the Roman worldview, this centurion would have never called a criminal the Son of God. In fact, it would have been regular practice for him to look at Augustus, the Roman emperor, and declare that Augustus was the son of God. The centurion was likely holding coins in his pocket, Roman coins, which bore the image of Augustus and bore the words, Augustus, the son of God. And yet in this moment, the Roman centurion looks to Jesus, turns from the darkness that he had followed his whole life, and says about Jesus that he was the Son of God. Well, then what was it that the centurion saw? Well, certainly it wasn't the physical death. This man had been acquainted with crucifixion. He had seen people die this horrible physical death. But Mark tells us that it was the way that he breathed his last. See, it was these very words that Jesus cried out that caused the centurion to believe. The centurion watched as Jesus sat in the darkness He watched as God had forsaken him. He watched as the curtain tore into two from top to bottom. And he believed that something spectacular had happened that only the Son of God could do. The question for you this morning is, do you believe that something supernatural and profound was happening on that cross 2,000 years ago? Listen, understand this. This is not a fairy tale. This is factual history. These are the details about a man who in time and space climbed onto a cross. A man who had nails, real metal nails driven through his wrists and feet. Who was put on a real wood cross. A fact of the history of the world that we live in. He was raised, and he died. And the question for you this morning was, was this. Was that a supernatural and profound thing that God had accomplished? Was that the way that God would deliver us from the damaging, disorienting, and destructive darkness that we walk in? As we participate in communion this morning, We do so not only as acknowledgement of Jesus' crucifixion, but as an appreciation that he entered into the weight of darkness that we should have eternally bore. We should have been the ones that sat in the darkness that Jesus sat in. But it was his blood that was shed, not ours. And it was his flesh that was pierced and not ours. And what Jesus does in offering us communion is he offers us a time to ingest internally intake, spiritually signify all that he accomplished for us. And shedding his blood, having his flesh pierced, he bore the wrath of God in order that the darkness may be lifted from our shoulders. And so this morning, we're going to do communion a little bit differently. 
Joel and Megan are going to sing a song over us, and I would just ask you to reflect on the words of these songs. Reflect on all that the song is speaking to us and on its truth. And then in your own time, when you're ready, take communion and receive communion in order to link your heart to this centurion's heart, in order to declare with him, truly, this was the Son of God.